All right, welcome to the second episode of the George Kennan Club edition here, the Geopolitical um, Pivot. I, I brought the other knuckleheads back, uh, Daniel and Brian. Um, they already get on my nerves, but we're, <laughs> we're back to talk about, you know, the world's favorite friend, I guess. Russia, am I am I accurate with that? Oh, uh, it's uh, you know certainly the the kind of big topic in the geopolitical arena right now when folks manage to stop talking about Canadian truckers. Uh, okay, so I've been confused about that. <laughs> oh like, God. what is going on in Canada? But anyway, um, <laughs> and then Brian over here looks like us eight-year-old that's just <laughs> nobody told you to shave my guy um, i i wanted to shave and then i realized oh god i shaved too much <laughs> it looks it looks good it looks good i think you're rocking it just wait for it to grow out again and then i'll feel better yeah. not not everyone can pull off a baby face but you're doing it <laughs> concerning how well he he gets away with it but anyhow we're talking about today the what the hell is going on in Europa? Like, this is, it's like every day is progressively like 10 more, you know, uh, MLRSs are now in Belarus or amphibious assault ships now in the Black Sea. And it's like he thinks he can sneak him in there. Like, no, no, no one, you're not fooling anyone, buddy. Come on. <laughs> at, at this point, I don't even know if he thinks he's sneaking them in. I, I don't feel think like he cares just, You know what? They know. Might as well just send more in. <laughs> he doesn't even care anymore. He's just like, you know what? Like, <laughs> yeah. They already see it. Like, um, but, I mean, the, the first thing that we should definitely talk about is uh, Napoleon, I mean, uh, Emmanuel Macron um, having, was it a five-hour uh, meeting with Vladimirovich? Talking about how they could potentially um, de-escalate the situation. What's France's goal here to like be top dog in Europe again? Like, honestly, I think that for Macron, the big thing, you know, he's got an election cycle coming up. He wants to seem like a strong leader um, within, you know, the French parliamentary system. The job that he has is one that's very, very focused on foreign politics rather than. Um, domestic politics as much. So, you know, if he screws this up, uh, the people are not really going to have a lot of good reasons to uh, give him more another term. And yeah, I guess especially that. because right now, France, I, mo- I'm f- a slight majority in France do not want to have any involvement or any war in Ukraine. So I think uh, it's one of, it's probably, it feels more like a political ploy to make sure that he can get more popularity, especially for his party. Which I think that makes sense. I mean, I remember when we had the whole uh, thing with Australian uh, submarines and he recalled his ambassador from America as a protest and then, you know, had the audacity to say that America can't be trusted um, with his obligations. He's not that much of an ally. And then Russia and China was like, I know that's right. So, um, with Macron. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, do you guys remember, uh, you know, the last uh, French election, I believe it was, uh, one of the major candidates who was running was a very, very pro-Russian candidate who'd been supported by the Russians, who, um, you know, she was working with a whole bunch of that sweet, sweet Russian ultranationalist money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she'd been to the Kremlin. I actually happened to be walking in Red Square one of the days that she was visiting Putin in his office at the Kremlin. And um, she didn't, you know, she didn't end up winning, didn't end up uh, succeeding in that endeavor, but it was a reasonably tight election, as I uh, recall. Was this and the presidential election? or I believe yeah, so. Yeah, it was him and um, Le, Pen. Le Pen. I think her name. Yeah, Le Pen. Le Pen, that's it. Um, so, you know, one thing that Macron might be playing at here, knowing that this election is coming up and knowing that if he can negotiate um, peace and can renegotiate France's position, both as a strong EU leader, a strong NATO member, and as sort of the de facto diplomatic force in Central Europe, while not uh, flaming things with Russia, he knows he could probably get some of the vote of the uh, the pro-Russian folks who were supporting Le Pen. That makes sense. Yeah. So, like, I guess with 
Which is interesting, though, because, I mean, if you look at um, kind of like the, I guess, the blocks, the political blocks within on the European continent, um, Putin has been able to really position Russia as kind of like this bastion of, like, European-based nationalism. Not Russian nationalism, per se, but the concepts of popular sovereignty, um, state sovereignty, monitored democracy, um, that we kind of see taking place in places like Hungary and oh yeah, um, and, and I mean Italy. if you so. you can you could just look at um, you know one of the biggest ways that they tried to push this sort of European sovereignty, European nationalism, um, and it was really effective in France. It was reasonably effective in Germany to the point that it's led to resurgence of uh, right wing uh, nationalist groups in those countries. Um, Back when uh, the Syrian civil war was going on, oftentimes Russia was known to really intensify their attacks against civilian targets in Syria mm-hmm. in order to drive more and more immigrants to try to get to Europe and then would release, uh, you know, they would essentially put out fake news reports, things through 4chan. They would, you know, uh, sometimes they put them in the national press if they were able to insert something, basically stating that all these folks who were coming over were terrorists and that they were committing these heinous atrocities against the beautiful young European women and children, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it really was a major contributing factor, according to some assessments at least, in uh, leading to this resurgence of right-wing nationalism across Europe, which of course now, you know, when you get folks on that path and you put them down that rabbit hole, that's going to take them in uh, you know, their own sort of direction. And that direction on the whole is going to be individual nationalism calling for more sovereignty for each state and less dependence on nato right and i mean knowing what putin wants is uh, you know the fracturing or the solution of nato um to open up that uh, geographically flat eurasian plane that's you know historically always been a clashing ground between germany and and, and russia um historically speaking but seeing as how um the understanding, at least on the German side, the necessity of Russian cheap uh, NG resources. Um, it's it's now, from what how I see it, really, I see France is kind of trying to be that that voice of at least a leader in Western European uh, politics and in some cases Western European identity. It's not much Germany can really do right now, understanding Nord Stream too. Um, yeah. And you know the necessity of Russian resources, especially during the winter time. Uh, if this was a different time, maybe we don't know. But I mean, even the past few days, um, Biden—I think it was Biden—or at least the Biden administration stated that, oh, if Russia essentially does try to go into Ukraine or invade Ukraine, they will directly target and try to stop or terminate the Nord Stream Two pipeline. But I just find it fascinating. Um, okay, Brian. So yeah, no, the thing involving the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that caught me curiosity when the Biden administration said that they would do so against it. My que- only questions would be just like, what could they really do that much to stop it? Because I feel like it would mostly be, in the end, I feel like it would be mostly Germany's role and if they want to stop it or not. Well, it's pretty much Germany's role, yes. But I mean, in that case, it's a matter of, well, would that in itself stop um, the Russians? And, and to kind of go back to our point with the French, what does Macron long-term goal-wise, and it's kind of like an open-ended question to the both of you, um, if Macron was able to essentially broker some sort of an agreement, let's say in some hypothetical situation, he was able to broker an agreement with Putin, what could said brokerage B, uh, what deal could Macron essentially settle with the Russians? We know Putin does not want NATO in Eastern and Central Europe. But we also know that, quite frankly, he has his eyes on essentially the Russian parts of Ukraine. What type of concessions would France have to agree with in order to satisfy the demands or the, in- the general intrigues of, of uh, Vladimir Vich? That's a hard one. I'll admit, I'm not really the biggest French expert, <laughs> but like, I think to get any for Putin to get Putin to agree to anything, it would you'd have to at least be able to give him at least enough control, but good enough buffer space between 
I'd say between the Russian border and the end of Ukraine to be willing to possibly agree. But even there, I, I don't honestly think uh, Putin's willing to play ball on any negotiations unless he gets a whole pie almost. I think, I think that Putin, uh, I think Putin did deliberately sort of shoot higher than he ever expected anyone would concede in part to make it easier for, um, you know, those countries to say, well, you know, we're negotiating with him, you know, it'd be like if, you know, I walked into your house and I said, Hey, I am going to take over your entire home now. And you were like, well, no, you can't do that. And I said, well, I've got a gun. How about I just stay on your front porch? You say, okay, well, I can't, you know, I don't want to fight you. So I'm not going to make you leave, but you can stay on the front porch, I guess. I feel like that's kind of what, uh, or something like that might be kind of what he's going for here. And France can't obviously speak for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, France can't speak for all of NATO, but what France can do is very carefully and very diplomatically say, you know, we're not going to rule anything out and we're happy to come to the table and talk about this, which I think is why, you know, that looks good for Macron because he can then go to his people and he can say, we had this very, very diplomatic conversation about preventing conflict in which Vladimir Putin said he didn't want to go to war. We said, we're going to try to make sure no one goes to war. And then Putin could shoot back saying, well, and he did shoot back shortly after that saying, well, we didn't actually establish anything from this meeting. We didn't set anything in stone. There were no deals that were made here. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would pour some, it was described, I believe, as literally pouring some cold water on this deal that wasn't really a deal that they made. Right. Um, you know, he, he wants to really kind of light a fire under most of Europe's butt and get them to come to the table to negotiate on things that none of them want and none of them are really interested in and don't benefit anyone except for Russia. And his tool for doing this is to claim that he's under attack and threaten to throw all of Europe into anarchy. And people know that he's, you know, he's getting old. He's maybe just crazy enough to actually do it and see what happens. No, you know, that makes sense. I mean, I just find it fascinating that it's NATO in large, other than even we saw with Ukraine where Ukrainians were telling even America, like, hey, stop saying that an invasion is imminent. Like, you're only essentially exacerbating the friction within this very confined strategic space um, by causing people to panic. And the last thing, the last thing that you want is a major panic. Um, yeah. And I think with if you're looking at the the French actions, um, I think France is trying to avoid, at least Macron is trying to avoid essentially the same thing that Ukraine is. As well, it's yeah. like, look, we don't want, obviously, we don't want a conflict, um, but one is not off the table um, if it were to occur. I think the same thing could happen with Macron because now Macron is in a position where he has to be a man of his word as well. Yeah, I mean, I think most of, most of Europe knows uh, if this escalates to a conflict, you know, there's going to have a whole bunch of economic repercussions. I mean, there's worst case scenarios of this, but the more, you know, the more realistic scenarios generally involve mostly economic consequences for most of Europe insofar as gas supplies in the middle of winter and what's essentially the dead of winter for Europe, uh, food supplies, food networks, um, and I don't mean the TV channel. And uh, I think that Ukraine's big issue here is, you know, they're saying don't panic, don't make people panic about this, but they are also silently training it pretty much any young man, woman, or child in Ukraine who wants to get civil defense training and wants to get rifle training, they're giving them all that. They're running them through the ropes on this, and they're saying, you know, here's how you fire on a uh, roving militarized convoy from, you know, a second-story window. Here's how you spot and defuse various types of landmines. Here's how you set them up. Um, And, you know, they're giving uh, thousands of civilians that sort of training now to get them ready for what they see as potentially being a very real threat for them. But they don't want, you know, some guy in Germany to freak out about this and buy up all the toilet paper and mean the truth that Ukraine's not going to get access to. They, they don't want that at this stage. They want to make sure that they keep the uh, supply and demand and exchange rates and the sort of economic situation on the whole as stable as possible until the very last minute that it's not going to be because if it if it gets too messed up too soon that's just going to make things harder for Ukraine in the long run. Right. No, I agree with all of that and that kind of ties into we're going to talk about our, our next point about the ongoing notions of like Ukrainian disinformation that's going on. Um, mm. 
whether it's and Brian, this is something that you wanted to talk about. So I'm gonna give you the floor as I take a sip of this beautiful, beautiful wine. Oh no, not wine. Jesus, this is rum. Um, but that's you got the floor. We're talking about Ukrainian disinformation. What's going on? All right. I think I need to have my drink too for this. A beer. Really a stout. Dang, but it's, a it's a good Dragon, stout. Dragon's milk is pretty strong, to be fair. It's bourbon barrel aged. Like so, you know, one's got good taste this is a can, but usually an actual like twelve ounce bottle is just like twelve percent alcohol, so I'll give you one exemption. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, back to Russian disinformation in Ukraine especially. Um well for for 2014, we can talk about how there was a lot of disinformation that the Russians used, both in the West and especially in Ukraine, to get to cause people a panic, especially those who were of Russian descent. And the one thing that at least has been noticed recently in this most recent conflict has been there's been a lot of there's been a lot of disinformation going on the internet about stuff involving Ukraine, Russia, etc. The Biden administration talked about it a little bit, though I don't think they did like, that great of a job. <laughs> and But the one thing you, I think the best thing you need to look at is Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, any of those social media websites, especially YouTube, because there's a huge audience who's looking there. And there's a lot of political commentators who are talking about what's going on in Ukraine because it's on the news. And some of them are talking about some of them are bringing up topics that either a have been proven false or even have just been spun by other Russian military, by other Russian propaganda channels like RT, etc. Mm-hmm. And one, actually, one uh, channel that I came across, um, if I can, I don't remember the channel's exact name, but the guy who ran it was Kyle Kublinski, who he kept on. He was a, um, he was a, his main thing is he's anti-intervention anything into any conflict and the one thing i've noticed is he was using he was using information such as russia and nato the soviet union nato made a deal in the 19 like right before the soviet union fell that nato supposedly would not go like expand further eastward Mm -hmm. that was a lie because that specific discussion was actually involving East Germany and not putting any troops in East Germany when Germany reunited. And the Russians have been using this conversation to change it and say, oh, it wasn't East Germany, it was Eastern Europe. And look, NATO is expanding into our borderlands. The NATO lied to us. And yeah, they've, been I mean, they've been using this as justification for a lot of their actions. It's, it's really been astounding to see the way that this so much of this disinformation has played into the idea of, uh, you know, the, the very the very pro-Russian and the very clearly, uh, you know, made in Russia concept of, you know, oh, if NATO is offering membership to these Russian border states, uh, that's encroaching on Russian territory. It's like, OK, well, you tell me, why do you think these border states are interested in joining an alliance that mandates a certain level of military readiness, mandates a certain level of you know, having your grid uh, hardened in such a way, it mandates that you isolate some of your economic capability from the Russian Federation. Why would they be interested in something that is in the long run going to cost them millions, if not billions of dollars? Just just because, you know, why would they do it to spite Russia? It's like mm-hmm. they're not doing this to spite Russia. They're If they're expressing interest in NATO, it's because they have genuine and legitimate concerns about what their lives could be like if they were forced to live once again under Russian control mm-hmm. uh, for good reason. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's a it's it is a legitimate false democracy, totalitarian state over there. Sure. No, I mean, if you look at the history of Russia, have they actually had experience with the, the democracy in which Western civilization um, cultivated? No, not necessarily. It's always been uh, Russian monarchs or uh, Mongol hordes or feudal systems and i mean you, you, people like it's, it's thousands of years of a lot of struggle a lot of yeah. struggle and that struggle is kind of divided between having been invaded and occupied and terrorized and then being terrorized by your own leaders who were trying to keep other invaders out um and you know wanting to take over your neighbors so that your neighbors don't take over you first is just so 1800s 
You know, it's 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 so 19th century. <laughs> Honestly, the tactics from the 1800s, 1700s, any time period, they are always used in every timeline, no matter what. They've been used even during the Cold War, and they're still being used today. The only difference is is what means you're using to do those same tactics. For example, with Russia, like a lot of the disinformation tactics that they're doing now, they've done before during the Cold War, and as I said the last time, they've some people say that they got these tactics from the Mongols who used to do similar tactics to scare the scare enemy populations, divide and conquer, etc. The difference was they don't have they didn't have the technological capabilities that we have now where we can connect to people halfway across the world or and way. spread a message to thousands of people as well as to access information that is equivalent of like the libraries of alexandria and the russians have figured out a very valid way to use this to their advantage and they've used it well enough into ukraine they've used it in they've used it a little bit in georgia and we're seeing it right now especially with uh you can talk about the 2016 election with all everything that's happening i think it was something like 27 or 28 european countries had significant impacts uh, within their own uh, political systems because of Russian interference, the majority of which was digital, with maybe, you know, you'd have one or two or three uh, in-person handlers on the ground who would be helping to, um, you know, integrate the system, uh, would be handing off cash to the right people. But so much of what they did was just all digital, and they had the power to do that. Um, and that actually does kind of remind me a bit of, uh, you know, you, you shared that uh, that tweet that you found earlier this week, Brian. I mostly, you know, I... I don't spend much time on Twitter myself, but I have been seeing a ton of stuff coming out of TikTok, which is really the wild west disinformation of the modern era. Yeah. Um, I mean, oh every God. single video that I've seen about Ukraine has had comment sections ranging in, in an app, which generally has an average <laughs> comment section of maybe 100 to 500 people. We're talking comment sections ranging 300 to 3,000 in every single video that I've seen about Ukraine. Um, and it's just all people arguing about how, you know, this is America's fault. This is because of NATO expansion. People making the argument of like, well, how would the U.S. like it if we put, uh, you know, rocket launchers in, if Russia put rocket launchers in Mexico? You tried to and put a whole it, nuclear missile in Cuba. Like, dude, like, I don't, here's my thing. It's like, I, I don't like that. I always never liked that what if, because it's like. It actually did happen as yeah. far as, hey, yeah, let's try to put nuclear weapons in Cuba, some 40 or so miles away from Florida. We're yeah. like, okay, well, we're going to put our missiles in Turkey. And yeah. Well, like- I mean, people, people do make, uh, you know, I, I do understand at least the perspective that I've seen from some folks where they talk about, you know, some of the things that the U.S. government did in during the Cold War to prevent the Soviets entering the American sphere of influence in South America. Um, what that argument, you know, it, it is in a way kind of a red herring of an mm-hmm. argument. Like, well, I, well, I can understand at a base level why, you know, justifying Russia taking operations uh, into their own hands in Ukraine in response to America doing the same thing in South mm-hmm. America. Um, I think the large difference though is in that conflict we were in the Cold War in general, we we're looking at an ideological conflict where, for better or for worse, the US was under the impression that the communist ideology will lead inevitably to a system like was seen in Nazi Germany or was seen in Stalin's Russia. And they did not want authoritarian regimes on their door creating uh, potential terrorist organizations, mm-hmm. allowing Russian spies to funnel into the US. And it led to some serious atrocities committed by the United States. Don't get me wrong. I mean, seriously, seriously messed up stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, if you look at uh, the, the influence on Allende, um, you look at the, uh, you know, the Nicaraguan Contras, bad stuff. But we are, you know, we are decades past that point historically. We are at a point right now where it is no longer, or at least from the Western perspective, it's no longer an ideological conflict. Russia mm-hmm. is not communist. The West is not trying to, you know, the, the only thing that the West is trying to have an influence on in terms of international relations is mostly getting people to not kill each other and to engage in free and open trade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, complaints about capitalism notwithstanding. Uh, the idea that Russia would see Ukraine wanting to be a part of an alliance that just gives it a safety against being invaded by a neighbor 
and would interpret that as a good reason to go into the country, take over sovereign land 30 or 40 years after um, the most heated parts of the Cold War more or less ended means that they are still living very, very much in the past. And that's something that is really quite dangerous today. And that's another thing to mention, actually, when you're so one funny thing that I've noticed when looking online and looking all, all this stuff is people, yeah, people are making that analogy of like, well, how, how did we feel when Cuba came in and everything? And the one thing you need to compare, if you want to compare Cuba to the 1960s to us today was like Russia put its troops on its border way before we started putting any troops into Ukraine. And even if for any troops we have in Ukraine right now, they're mostly advisors training the army and they're not combat troops. Mm-hmm. We still don't have combat troops in Ukraine right now. The last time I checked and mo- and ever since 2014, 2015, there's been at least about 70 to 80,000 troops hunt, like near the Ukrainian border. And only recent has it gone up to about 170,000. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the 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 Russian the Russians increase their capability on the Ukrainian border every time they get a little bit nervous that Ukraine is independently pivoting towards, um, or at least independently as far as as far as anyone recently knows, is pivoting towards um, alliance with Europe and better connection with Europe. And you know, for their own security, I think that a really big issue here that we need to make sure we're considering is when countries want to join NATO, one of the things that they have to demonstrate is more or less that they're capable of being energy independent. If they're cut off for a certain period of time, they're going to be able to have infrastructures in place to protect themselves, protect their people, that they're able to get trade in oil and energy and other critical infrastructure products from multiple different sources. So those countries which are only minimally getting those resources from a diversified set of sources, for the most part, they're getting everything that they need from Russia. And that puts them in a position where Russia can pretty much say on a whim, we're going to cut you off unless you do what we want you to politically. Uh, And most countries don't want to be in a position where one country can unilaterally change their internal policy at the drop of a hat. And I, I say this recognizing that a lot of countries also feel that way about the United States. Yeah. I get what you're saying, but I when I was talking about my point, it was a little bit different. The one thing that no, I'm talking about specifically the claim for how people will talk about, try to compare this to the Cuban Missile Crisis when with, I with the troops say, on the ground. No, I get what you're saying with that. Yeah, I would say it's not entirely the same thing because Russia has had those troops on the ground since Crimea, since they invaded Crimea. And they've kept a good portion of them there, and then added more recently. And obviously, that's built up for if they sense fears of Ukraine is moving too close to the West. That's how it usually is. That's why all these buildups happen over the years. But I guess my thing I'm trying to say is I go against the claim that this is exactly the same as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Sure, Russia has its security concerns, and those are obvious because it doesn't want Ukraine to fall into the West because it can open a huge chunk of their border. But also, we react in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we reacted when we saw that there were Russian missiles in Cuba. Right. We don't have, like we don't, like, like I just said earlier, we do not have missiles in Ukraine. And right. any troops that we do have, if we do have troops in Ukraine, they're mostly, they're advisors. Yeah. We also did offer to show Russia that we don't have cruise missiles in Romania or Bulgaria. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the thing. And that is a good point. And what I'm saying is like, on a surface level, the, propaganda argument that people try to make comparing it to Cuba or parts of South America, you know, that's one thing that I think that they're really, really doing a good job with, especially when it comes to a whole lot of uh, disaffected youth around the world or within the United States between the ages of 16 and 25, who are feeling very, very discouraged with the last 20 years of, uh, you know, exported liberal democracy from the United States. Maybe they're interested in something new. And many of these folks, once they get it in their head that they're interested in something new, the only thing that they can see when they look at the United States is exporting death. Um, And every single situation like this that they look at, they're going to see the United States exporting death. They're not going to consider that other countries in the world are also doing really, really bad and dangerous things. I think also another thing is a lot of the youth today, like, I think they, some of them look a little bit too much into the past of what we did during the Cold War. 
obviously what we did was bad in Chile. You can look at Pinochet and Allende. You can look at what happened to Contras. You can look at Operation Condor, or you can even look at some of the African operations we did during the Cold War. But I think a lot of people also don't realize there's been a lot of changes that have happened since the 70s and 80s. And we, like you just said, mostly most of our policy right now has just been trying to stop people from creating conflict and mostly trying to make trade deals with other with other nations to expand our to trade with goods. That's right. like mostly what yeah. our policy has been. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they just look at a past and they obviously it's all morally wrong, but also they just think they just put that mostly in their head instead of just thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth looking at all U.S. foreign policy within the context of history, but it's also looking at it in the context of everything that's happening right now in the world. And you can't choose one of those and live your life in a vacuum of understanding of geopolitics. You have to understand the history, the contextual history of the rights and the wrongs, you know, the history of colonialism, of imperialism, of internalized racism. But you also have to look at the modern struggles, which around the world mean that, you know, there are so many countries which are legitimately reaching out to the United States and saying, you have the means to provide the aid and security that we need. Can you provide that for us? And when the United States does, so often it ends up getting demonized for doing so. Isn't to say that we do still sometimes do things for imperialist reasons. Um, you know, no one's pointing any fingers. We want to uh, make the uh, Iraq war feel singled out. But, um, you know, the, these things happen. These things do happen sometimes. Um, I did actually want to back up very briefly yeah, nice. uh, and talk again about the um, unconventional warfare stuff that's going on in Ukraine right now, specifically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the propaganda stuff. Brian, you had a great find earlier this week. Uh, you sent in the group chat the, uh, the Twitter thread of those individuals who found that there was a large group of protesters outside the American embassy in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Who were, yeah, absolutely. There's this group of hundreds of individuals who were... Um, you know, decrying the United States as interventionists. And when they were approached to ask what they were doing or why they were there, they indicated that uh, I believe it was Nadja had brought them there. Can I go and, a little bit further into that, actually? Yeah, I was, I was just going to send uh, to, the, to the group chat so you guys could both take a look. I went through that whole thread and I went through that whole thread and I found the uh, photograph that was taken of the group of individuals who were allegedly responsible for planning and coordinating the whole thing, just in case you guys wanted to know what some SVR guys looked like. No, that was the, well, that was something I wanted to go through. So I got that sent from a friend of mine who, um, a friend of mine who's actually from Ukraine and has contacts there. Luckily, he's li- he lives in the States, so he's not really in conflict zone, but he knows people there. And he sent me that link, and you sort of said a little bit, but basically, yeah, there was a protest outside the U.S. embassy. Someone decided to interview some of the people who were at that embassy, and they uh, who were and asked, okay, why are you protesting here? They're like, we don't know really. We're just here. And they're like, um, who brought you here? They're like, Natasha called us to come in. Who's Natasha? They even talked to Natasha. They even talked to this supposed Natasha, and she didn't really say much. And then you see the you see two guys, which is in this thread of two guys who were kind of in the background of it, like um, who were supposedly the organizers. And when this guy tried to interview them, they were very like. I would say they were they were not very talkative. They did not want to be filmed or anything, no, barely any pictures. And they were even trying to get the guy to leave. And the, this is pretty common of certain things that Russian that Russian intelligence agencies to try to do yeah. is to try to start is try to start ma- small protests or even massive protests in other countries, and even in some cases armed conflict. They say that what the first the first armed action in Donbass was a Russian intel operation in Slavyansk. Yeah, I mean that that reminds me of I mean um, the the Russian cyber division, I suppose you want to call it that. Um, they oh, did the same things in twenty sixteen <laughs> and twenty eighteen for our presidential and midterm elections, uh, where they would intentionally create you know, on Twitter, bots for the Republicans and bots for the Democrats. And then as well as even on Facebook, that what they would do is they would essentially create these protest events and do kind of like blast invitations. And what they mm-hmm. would do is... Well, that's that's the same thing that happened in 2014. Right. What, the Russians, yeah. what the Russian intel agencies did back then was they created fake accounts for both pro 
Euromaidan anti Euromaidan, they created Twitter storms yep. online, and they created and they created small gatherings that contradicted each other and created the violence, which then got reported reported in a specific way by Russian media, and then was given to Russian residents in Eastern Ukraine and the Crimea. You know what I do also love about these big old protest things that end up getting organized like this? Um, you know, from uh, from an intelligence standpoint, uh, what my favorite thing is about these is? What? What would that be? In addition to the fact that they make really, really good propaganda that can be twisted in numerous different ways, uh, they're just spectacular for conducting more clandestine operations. I mean, you've got the cover of a crowd outside of the U.S. Embassy. Um, you know, how many U.S. operations officers are going to be able to get out of the station there without uh, a half dozen Russians taking their picture? You know, you, you basically got 250 to 300 random Ukrainians who are all hanging out with their phones out, yelling, screaming, waving signs around. Um, it makes it much, much harder for intelligence agencies to do their jobs and much easier for, for example, the Russians who are conducting or organizing these sort of things to do their jobs. But well, it's true. They have the perfect cover right there to be able to do their operation, just have a protest outside and then just like see who comes in and comes out and document. And I mean, no, I agree. And that's also a very good segue into talking about the conventional and unconventional tactics that are being utilized by the Russians um, in Ukraine. Um, not just disinformation being one of the you know, the major active measure components, but now we're talking about the actual deployments or even intentions of much more modern um, advanced weapons and tactics system, uh, systems and equipments for conventional and unconventional usages. Um, and, you know, disinformation um, is a big part of that as far as getting the molding the strategic space for you to capitalize and that includes you know manipulating and upending social fabrics that are very sensitive um, and easily uh, entangled so uh, I know uh, Daniel this is something that you wanted to talk about um, as far as these modern advanced weapons and tactical equipments both conventionally and unconventional so the floor is yours my friend thank you thank you mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, for starters, at least, uh, when we're talking about unconventional tactics, um, both on the on the tactical level and the you know the smaller scale and on the strategic level, Russia has access to some of the most sophisticated and um, effective cyber warfare capabilities on the planet. Um, they have effectively been able to test those out over the last few years uh, in Ukraine in less um, you know life or death situations. And uh, our understanding of it in terms of the American military industrial complex, um, in addition to sort of having our own, um, you know, having our own wig snatched, as it were, uh, with regard to our own grid system, um, we've sort of realized that the Russian capabilities in this theater are not something that they loop in with conventional warfare, meaning even though the U.S. does consider it to be an act of war if there's a cyber attack on U.S. soil or on European soil, uh, Russia would consider that to be an act of just being silly um, or, you know, strategically so, I guess. Um, but speaking or looking outside of their cyber capabilities, which, of course, are really, really considerable, um, you also have to talk about their capabilities to or their, their, their ground troop capabilities, which, you know, technologically, they're not as advanced as the U.S. is. But since the late 1980s, end of the Cold War, they have really come up with some incredible uh, technological advancements within Russian military forces. Not necessarily things that the West doesn't have access to, but in many cases, they have deployed these things in different ways. They've trained with them in different ways than we do in the West. Um, some great examples of that are some of their really effective uh, individual anti-armor systems, which have meant that after the, or during the war on terror, as some of these Russian weapons were filtering into the Middle East, uh, American soldiers realized the armor that they were working with was ineffective at stopping some of these more advanced Russian weapons, whether you're talking about subsonic suppressed ASVAL or VSS Ventores, whether you're talking about the uh, Dushka 
uh, you know, some of these weapons were the things that uh, members of special forces were very, very, very concerned about if they saw them in the hands of Daesh or ISIS. Actually, something I wanted to ask you about. Um, yeah, go for it. It was a little bit more, more micro into this topic, but uh, so I was actually looking at something on the AS FAO, and the one thing I noticed was it seemed like the caliber of the bullet was different than the average Russian caliber. Like I think it said it was. Like it a- is. Yes, so it's a 9 by 39 millimeter, which basically means um, the rifle itself is designed to be fully subsonic. If you've ever heard it fire, it's one of the most silent rifles that exists, pretty much. Um, It really is a whisper. You pretty much can just hear the mechanism of the rifle, and it doesn't have the sort of crack that you get with a sonic boom because it uses a much heavier 9 millimeter subsonic bullet. Um, That 39 millimeter means that it's about the size of... Uh, or it's close to the size of an AK round, but it's got that rounded, much, much heavier bullet that slows it down in flight. So it's hitting with a lot more force. And what they're able to do is they're able to provide different coatings or different materials to these to make them armor piercing while still being effectively subsonic. Um, And while they do have a much more limited range as a result, uh, usually a range of about 150 to 200 meters, these weapon systems are extremely effective for special forces, um, you know, when they really can just move in on a position, effectively whisper in with these rifles. I mean, there's a reason that they call this thing the thread cutter. Um, yeah, they're incredibly dangerous for special forces to use, and they're very, very easy to, um, you know, in the last 20 years, they've gotten very, very good at making these weapon systems able to be taken down and concealed. Uh, you know, in the 80s, they could put them in a suitcase that was generally somewhat resistant to metal detection scans and other types of scans that you deal with in an airport. In the modern day, they've been able to make these weapon systems even smaller. So they're super easy for regular forces to smuggle in. And I have heard some rumors, actually, that the sniper at the Maidan was using uh, a, a VSS Taurus. But, uh, you know, I, I can't obviously confirm that because it's not something that I've seen direct picture evidence of. I don't know if the Ventura I don't know. I feel like I saw a photo from that time where someone tried to get a picture, but I, yeah, this was a long, I thought when I saw the picture, I thought it was a usual dragon off, but, uh, I, again, this is like more than eight years ago. So I can't say like, I'm, my memory's that accurate. Um, and the, the way that I think you can really sort of understand that the DOD is finally taking the threats of these new armored weapon systems seriously. And the fact that, when Russia does develop these armor-piercing weapon systems for individual soldier combat, um, they also generally focus on developing armor, which is more lightweight and yet more capable of protecting against their own uh, modems of attack. So uh, modern Russian weapons are in many cases armor-piercing against modern uh, Western military armor itself. Um, Not in all cases and not in very heavy cases, but, you know, the average... Uh, plate carrier is not going to stand up well to some of these weapon systems, um, especially if uh, they're, these Spetsnaz are operating the way that they're trained to, which is generally, you know, you go for central body mass, and if that doesn't drop the target, then you go for the pelvis area, which almost certainly will. Um, but uh, moving beyond that, um, you know, they have these much more advanced armor systems for individual soldiers that they've developed since the Cold War. Uh, you know, the Rotnik 3 system, which I believe is uh, either in the process of being deployed or is finally fully deployed. Um, so the U.S. military has actually been working on um, more advanced uh, individual soldier armor systems, as well as upgrading the uh, U.S. military rifles from the uh, AR pattern uh, M4 M16s to the NGSW, which there's a competition going on for right now. Um, that caliber would be in 6.8 which is considered to be a quote-unquote battle rifle caliber. So we're really going back to like beginning of the Cold War, end of the Second World War, uh, really, really big, really heavy, really armor-piercing bullets um, flying at higher speeds with uh, generally higher recoil, at least in theory, um, in order to face this kind of near-peer threat that is anticipated for uh, following up the global war on terror. And I guess what you really kind of have to ask is, why is Russia putting so much effort into its individual soldier weapon systems like this? Why are they investing so much money and time into making sure that each individual soldier has um, some of the command and control capabilities as well as some of the um, you know, optical capabilities with their, uh, some of their new, generally stolen from the West, uh, 
derivatives of night vision and thermal optics and these new weapon systems that are designed to be adaptable and highly successful behind enemy lines. Uh, but then you sort of you consider it and you realize much of their tactics in a large-scale war at this point would involve using electronic warfare and cyber warfare to effectively shut down um, the cyber capabilities of their opponents, which means for U.S. troops, you're looking at no more GPS connectivity, which everything uses GPS these days. You're looking at limited capability to actually geolocate your troops, geolocate and aim your weapon guidance systems. You lose close air support. You lose your capability to navigate your tanks. And then it comes down to the individual soldiers. And so if you're taking your individual soldiers and you're saying, I'm going to give these guys really, really good armor and then armor-piercing weapons that I know is going to get through the enemy's armor, you start to see why that might be a little bit of a problem. But then it also allows the Russians, um, essentially as well, to um, just for for example, I mean, if you put the whole uh, Ukraine uh, use Ukraine as an example, um, if they really so wanted to to arm um, proxy organizations or groups that are in proximity um, to main conventional Russian forces. Um, that are able to utilize the Ukrainian population essentially to get behind um, enemy lines to then initiate, you know, a, a, yeah. a, a ground tactical operation against the, uh, an adversary um, that provides a tactical advantage to um, to the Russians, really, at that point. Because, yeah. I mean, if you should... I mean... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I mean, close air support is really really useful and it's one of the things that the u.s is best at mm -hmm. um but you know your close air support kind of goes out the window if you can't find the opposition you're looking for because they're blending in among the civilian populations they're hiding they're really really good at doing that and it makes it even harder if you as a russian operator you're able to you know you, you don't need to give a whole bunch of uh, college training to a whole bunch of officers to teach them how to use a rifle that's a similar pattern to the AK that's been in service since the 1950s. You can just take these rifles that everyone in Eastern Europe at some point has known, has learned how to use. You can dump these in the middle of a town square. You can say, here you go, hide these in your houses. We'll call you when you need to. And there is very limited uh, responses that can be taken except to go into very, very dirty, very, very nasty door-to-door, house-to-house fighting, uh, which, you know, the last time the U.S. really did uh, gone into the nitty-gritty of that in Iraq, it was some of the worst fighting of the entire global war on terror. Yep. You know, when you force Americans to have to do that, that is where our own military weaknesses sort of start to manifest. And when you have Americans coming home, not to say that this would be a Russian versus American conflict, but in a hypothetical situation, you know, any Western country, where there are more folks being sent home in body bags on one side than are being reported to the other side, you're going to start to see a real serious uh, moral conundrum for the populace in terms of uh, supporting ongoing conflict. I mean, that also provides Russia an even more strategic or even tactical advantage if they are heavily concentrating their their um, their proxy accumulation in the Russian, the ethnically Russian-dominated portions of Ukraine, um, right. especially especially then those those areas that are much more sympathetic to. You know the the independence of the Donbas region, so yeah, yeah. you know if you're able to essentially secure the um, majority well, spectrum of the majority um, ethnically Russian dominated parts of Ukraine, that's a massive geographic area that you're going to have to ensure that you don't have these types of Russian uh, weapon imports given to legitimate Russian proxy organizations, Russian private military contracting companies, or even Russian sympathizers who are like, okay, well, if you need our help, let us know. At that point, you don't even have to employ sympathizers into actual, you know, battalions or regiments or even squadrons. Yeah. You don't. I mean, you, how, for example, how they did in Afghanistan, where you had, you had literal grandmothers um, operating as spy operatives for Mujahideen fighters on, like, they weren't part of the actual structure of the, the right. Mujahideen, but because they were sympathizers for their mission, they're like, okay, well, you know, this is my usual route. If I see anything, I'll let you know. Well, okay, well, here's a gun just in case. So Yeah, I mean, setting up a good network of informants, of uh, supply runners, of fixers, um, matched with really, really effective electronic warfare to prevent surveillance or minimize or you know reduce 
hostile surveillance, really kind of shut down the grid, make it so troops have to go in and do things on their own as individuals if they want to counter what you're doing, you know, make them come to you. Um, I mean, it's, it's been said that uh, in any kind of conflict, you never want to, you want to spend as little time as possible on the defensive side. Yeah. But um, in these sorts of guerrilla conflicts, uh, one of the most effective ways to demoralize and destroy your enemy is make them come to you a little bit and then back off, go somewhere else, make them come to you again. And each time they come to you, cut down a couple of their guys, make it so that every single time they're kicking in a door, they are terrified about what they're going to find on the other side, even right. if this is a little old lady. That's, that's the interesting thing, because especially when it comes to Russian tactics, they generally like to do things that I would say the West would be more horrified to see. Like, you can look at some of their special forces operations where... Spoon guy, yeah. Like, there's a, there's a hijacking factor in the Soviet era where an Armenian was trying to get to the United States and he had an entire airplane from Air, from Erfurt hostage. They brought in they brought in the person's mother to try to convince them to to give up. And um and, sorry, I'm trying to remember if uh, trying to remember the exact thing, but if I remember correctly, um basically they brought in this mother and then when the mother left they said, okay, listen up here, if you don't get out of that plane right now, we're literally gonna kill your mother. So I suggest you get out now. I mean, you didn't have to go back that far. You can look into the, uh, the war in Chechnya, where literally, or how sometimes if there's a, a Chechen or somebody that they're looking for is held up into a, uh, a building, they got no problem bringing in a BTR and blowing that shit down. Yeah, is, you can look at the Beslan school siege for that. Right. That's like one of the oh, best right. examples. Or the right Moscow there. Theater. The Moscow right. Theater. Moscow theater. The no, what's even Jesus. funnier with the Moscow Theater scene? I wouldn't call it funny, but... With the Moscow theater siege, like that, think about it. You're in the, you're in the Russian capital that like anything that ha- any terrorist attack that happened there gets big news and it would cause a lot of problems for the Russian government, Russian, yeah, basically Russian military, etc. And what happened during that operation is for those who don't know, they pumped a bunch of they pump a classified gas into the um, into the ventilations to make everyone go to sleep, and they were able to kill all the terrorists. Terrorists, but the gas they pumped in so much that it started killing part of the hostages in there, and it, I think it affected about like three to four hundred. Yeah, part of the issue uh-huh. was they were they didn't want to disclose what kind of gas it was. So when the paramedics came in, they started giving oxygen to the knocked out civilians and that was what started killing them um, yeah and what's even funnier is a lot of the people I, again i wouldn't use the word funny <laughs> but well i'm sorry to say it i'm no, sorry to say right. those words i don't mean it but um I, I know what you mean i got you but yeah like with that operation a lot of those in the military even units, they say that was a successful mission even though yeah. so many people die from that like we would Back here in the United States, or even what in Europe, we consider that a failure because a lot of the hostages died. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well. I mean, that's the thing. For uh, I've sort of come to the conclusion after a lot of examination of how Russia handles terrorism and counterterrorism. Um, a terrorist attack in Moscow, on the one hand, may look pretty bad for Russia and for Putin specifically. Um, for him, though. I think in some cases it's kind of like Christmas because it gives him an excuse to pretty much do whatever he wants, deploy his forces within the country and outside of the country, however he sees fit, and say this is because of terrorism. I mean, every single, not every single, but a lot of the raids that have been conducted against opposition groups in Moscow have been to check for terrorist material. Um, you know, the Moscow bombing, if you go all the way back to the Bedezhovsky group, the Moscow bombing in uh, 1999 was more or less proven to have been orchestrated by the FSB in order to help Putin come to power. Um, and the people who've talked about that, for the most part, have all wound up dead. Yeah. What's, though, going back to talk about Ukraine and as Russian troops start to push in, Yes. what's going to be very interesting uh, is, as you guys were talking about, like, this is, we got a good portion of the population of Ukraine that's willing to fight against the Russians or even support a rebellion against Russians, insurgency operations, etc. And what's going to be very interesting is in the areas border, mostly bordering Russia, specifically Donetsk and Lugansk, those are going to be a lot more sympathetic to a Russian 
to Russians coming in. But the farther the Russians go westward, the more resistance they're going to grab, especially because after the events of 2014, that has made the Ukrainian population less friendly towards Russia. So even I debate even some of the areas we predicted back then in 2014, such as um, Mikolaev, Odessa, or like basically the eastern and southern regions, I debate if some of those regions are as friendly to perceive friendly to Russia than they used to be right now, which makes you wonder, like, will the operation fully go as smoothly as what people might expect for if they're going to eastern Russia, which um, I, which would also segue into talking about how, what's been going on with how Russia and some of its, some of its people, even generals view the conflict. Before we get into that, I mean, I don't think if Russia was smart and they actually did it. I per I, if I was Russia and I had the opportunity to do it, I would stop at the Dnieper. That is a viable option, honestly. I wouldn't even care to take all of it. I wouldn't. As for the same all reason you just stated, the more west you go, the less ethnically Russian dominated it is and the less prone they are to essentially bend the knee um, to Moscow. However, even in even in um, ethnically Russian majority places um, in Ukraine, I don't think they want to be annexed by Russia. Um, it goes into the concept of you know Novorossiya, um, but I think if Russia were smart, on the same, I would provide essentially a liberation to a uh, liberation opportunity to those ethnically Russian dominated areas and treat them the same way that the Donbass is being treated by Moscow. Well, I don't think they're going to annex the regions. No, I, I don't either. They're going to try to recreate a puppet state. Right. If they were to go stop at the Dnieper. Right. The annexation of any of Ukrainian territory, I don't think is in the priority list of the Russians for this whole escalation. I think it's literally molding these new strategic spaces, these buffers, uh, but also strategically hindering uh, Ukraine. Like, think about it. If I'm able to effectively liberate Ukrainian lands east of the Dnieper, and that includes south, um, southern Ukraine and southeastern and some parts of southwestern Ukraine, it completely takes Ukraine out of the Black Sea. That also takes away a majority of Ukrainian um, energy resources that are in the east, especially around the Sea of Azov, which Russia wants. If I'm able to do that, I further am able to not only bring you the rest of Ukraine to the negotiation uh, table, but also that gives me direct access to countries like Romania to keep an eye on, uh, on NATO. Keeps me, gives me an opportunity to expand my uh, strategic resources and um, access to warm water ports in the Black Sea. It gives me further industrial capacity since a lot of Ukraine's, especially Cold War era, industrial zones are on the eastern side of the Dnieper. Russia needs that. One of Ukraine's um, premier military industrial um, organizations or companies, um, especially when it comes to uh, Ukrainian ballistic missile productions, is in eastern Ukraine. So if I'm able to essentially liberate that part, not annex it, but make it into some sort of a geographic puppet, that effectively makes the Ukrainian state cease to exist in a lot of institutional capacity. That uh, is one thing I forgot. What people forget is Eastern Ukraine was the industrial yes, heartland of Ukraine. It is, actually. Yeah, it still is. So the more of if Eastern Ukraine's gone, like West, the rest of Ukraine, for whatever it still stands, is basically going to be farms. <laughs> Not even <laughs> just that. The major agricultural production centers of Ukraine is, as well is it's in Eastern Ukraine. Probably more in the West, I thought. Mm-hmm. I gotta relook at my history now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll look it up, but as far as I, if I remember correctly. But with that being said, um, while I look this up, um, Daniel, go ahead about the scenarios. Yes, so best case and most likely case scenarios uh, that I feel like we're worth, uh, worth sort of looking at here. Um, I, I've had a couple of people ask me, like, how would you see, and of course, with, with any kind of global conflict being in the news, potentially, 
what you see all over the place is people talking about like, oh my God, there's going to be a draft. Oh my God, I don't want to fight in World War III. Oh my God, oh my God. And I mean, you know, for the most part, the odds of something like that happening are extremely, extremely low, I would say, barring any radical change of events. Um, I would say in the worst case scenario that would lead to an escalation of that level, what I could see happening is Russia and Belarus launching that full-scale invasion, uh, getting to Kiev really quickly and launching a several a bevy of cyber attacks against Ukraine, shutting down their grid, uh, effectively starving the people within a couple of days due to the grid being shut down and forcing many of them to take handouts from the Russian army in order to survive. Puts them in a position where, you know, they're not looking for a long-term occupation. They're just looking to displace the current leadership, hold their own elections, and then get the hell out. You know, they don't want this to become their own uh, Afghanistan or or another Afghanistan or their own Vietnam. Mm. Um, however, in the process of that going on, in this worst-case scenario, you also have uh, Belarus moving in, declaring war alongside Russia, wanting to get Ukraine uh, back in the sort of Slavic Brotherhood that Lukashenko has talked about. And you have Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, or Poland, or any combination of the above, then declaring war on Belarus for doing that, and Belarus declaring war right back. And the second that one of those countries has war declared against them, that's an Article 5 right there. Article 5 indication, of course, meaning NATO is now involved in the conflict. And, you know, I could hypothetically see one of those countries saying, we're going to aid our brothers to the south, because next time, what if it's us? And independently declaring war against Belarus as an individual, leading to a sort of World War One-esque spiral of several different countries declaring war on each other, and one of those eventually triggering an Article 5. Do I see that as something that's likely? No. That is just, you know, when people ask, how could the U.S. get more pulled into this situation? That's the way that I would see that happening. Um, the most likely scenario, I think, is not entirely different from that first scenario. Primarily, though, the difference is the focus would stay in Ukraine. Um, you know, Russia would start with, or they would continue this massive disinformation. Um, I think the reason, one of the big reasons they haven't invaded yet is because every single one of their disinformation attempts has been exposed and blown up in the news, um, particularly in European and Western news. Um, so it's just kind of been all over the place describing, here's what Russia's going to do. They're going to make a video, or they're going to do a false flag attack, or they're going to do this, they're going to do that. And each time the U.S. or, you know, an ally power has exposed, that's what they're going to do. One of these times they have something planned, we miss it. That plan goes through and they consider that the impetus for a smaller scale assistance that would be provided to Eastern Ukraine while at the same time pushing rapidly towards Kiev through Belarus with Belarusian forces. Um, they would probably pair that with some really, really serious cyber attacks and infrastructural attacks against Ukraine to take down the grid. Um, you know, start immediately flooding with disinformation, strikes behind enemy lines, taking out um, power grid, taking out airports, Spetsnaz forces. And as soon as they have essentially flung the country into chaos, they start discussing how this was actually a popular revolution and they're just there as peacekeepers calling for a new election. And then once again, working on getting their people out. Um, the West would probably respond to that situation with, you guessed it, a whole bunch of sanctions. Um, maybe a couple of cyber operations and, you know, barring Eastern Europe getting more involved than they already do, that would probably be the end of it. However, I would not be surprised if uh, U.S. covert elements continued to provide aid to Ukrainian resistance, Ukrainian struggles within the country for a long time. That would probably end up being a losing battle in the long term, but it would make the struggle overall much more painful for Russia and consider cause considerable economic damage back home for them. Hmm. So I think I think I see that as the most likely conclusion here. Mm -hmm. If it if it turns into any kind of a shooting war, um, but it's the kind of situation where if it comes to that, you know, as as you can see from those two sort of examples, um, while it's very very unlikely that the situation would further escalate in those two examples, the system through which it could escalate would just be a series of political decisions that would need to be made at the very highest level, right? By Eastern European countries who would be upon seeing an attack like that occurring, probably pretty freaked out. So we kind of have to count on them to, unfortunately, to not do that. Um, because again, that's conflict that spiral out of control. And that's something Putin himself has in several speeches already directly warned against. He said, if you entangle yourselves too much with Ukraine, you're going to trigger your own Article 5, and then you're going to have no choice but to fight me, and you don't want to do that. Right.
So that's something that he himself has sort of anticipated as a potential outcome here. Right. Well, with that being said, we've been talking about for over an hour. So here's what I want to do because there's just so much information, honestly, that we can go through. Uh, we're going to end this one, but then we're going to, when we do a part three, we're going to pick up on why, how some Russian generals and soldiers and civilians are concerned about this. And then we're yes. also going to do uh, what we did last time about uh, if you could request one Intel drop, where would it be? What would it be and why? So Yeah, that would be great. We'll pick up on those two. Um, on our next session and then hopefully we'll have some more information by that time to um, kind of do a debrief on I definitely do want to talk about next time the, uh, the, the positioning of these Russian multiple launch rocket systems um, the ones that they did deploy um, their capabilities um, that way people kind of understand um, what they are, what they're capable of, their range. Yeah, that would be good. Because some of them are like 560 kilometers, and that's like literally you're honing, you're essentially establishing an A2AD framework, um, where it's like, well, if you if any Western force gets within that uh, 560 kilometers of a of a smirching LRS, and if it's a thermobaric uh, warhead, then God rest your soul. Um, uh, but no, definitely, I want to touch on those um, for part three. Um, so with that, you know, we're going to end it here, and then we'll pick up where we left off uh, next time. All right. Uh, Pleasure as always, gentlemen. Pleasure as always. Talk to you all soon. Take care. Bye. Oh.